0: there and welcome to the deadly analysis podcast my name is noah adam and today i am super excited i'm more excited than donald trump after his fingers have grown five centimeters like that's how excited i am today I'm, i'm actually more excited than annie wilkes after she caught paul sheldon uh why you ask because today i get to talk about one of my favorite horror movies of all time and it's it's a fairly recent one too Today we're going to review and analyze It Follows, a film by David Robert Mitchell, who, before this, directed The Myth of the American Sleepover, which is also a good film, albeit a very different film than It Follows. It Follows is about a young adolescent woman named Jay who's coming into adulthood. She goes out on a date with this seemingly nice fellow that she's met named Hugh, and they have a good time and eventually end up in the backseat of his car doing the hoo-ha tango. But things kind of go downhill from there. The seemingly nice young man gags her, ties her up, and explains that their sexual encounter will now result in some sort of thing or entity following her for every moment of every day of her life. And the only way she can get rid of this is to sleep with someone else and pass it along to the next person. And so the movie is about Jay and her friends trying to figure out how to handle this. Now, one of the things I want to say up front is that this is kind of the definitive film that you want to show to someone who has no idea what it's about. So my assumption is that if you're listening to this podcast, you've already seen the film, you know what it's about. But if you ever watch this with one of your friends who maybe hasn't seen it, I think this film becomes even better when you go into it blindly. Now, in my first podcast, I distinguished between enjoying horror films and appreciating horror films. So I want to start with what I actually enjoyed about this movie. So first and foremost, the atmosphere of this film is just absolutely haunting. It's a densely atmospheric film that creates a sense of apprehension and dread as the story progresses. It's not really a scary film in the traditional sense, like one that has a lot of cheap scares or jolting moments. I mean, there's a couple of those in the movie. But really, I think this film was created to be kind of a slow burn. It sort of slowly unnerves you from the inside out. And I really like films that do this. These are my favorite types of scary movies. It shows a dedication to the craft. Films like this have to figure out how to slowly draw on human psychology to a certain degree, how to bring out that unease and that angst and I think It Follows does that incredibly well. After all, it's pretty unsettling knowing that no matter where you are or where you go, this thing is on its way after you. Now, I typically don't start my podcast this way, but one of the first things I want to commend about this film is the score. The music in this film absolutely makes the movie, and this actually caught me off guard when I went to see the film in the theater. I remember thinking to myself, like, holy shit, the music in this movie is just fantastic. It really stands out. It's very synth-heavy. It's very reminiscent of an early John Carpenter film, in fact, so much so that it's it's almost dreamlike, it's, it's so heavy and otherworldly. And that has the added effect of reinforcing and enhancing the almost claustrophobic sense of dread throughout the entirety of the film. There's kind of a soundscape sort of feel to it. And one of the scenes that really highlights this, and it really struck me, was the scene where Jay and her friends decide to drive into the city, into Detroit, to search for Hugh after he ties her up and tells her about the monster that she's inherited. This is probably, like, if I'm being honest, this is probably one of my favorite scenes in any film I've ever watched. And weirdly enough, there's absolutely no dialogue in it. You ever have one of those moments where, like, an image or maybe a song brings back an incredibly vivid memory of something, like, important in your life. Well, that sort of happened to me when I was watching this scene, and it it just totally caught me off guard, so I I may be a bit biased in how I look at this sequence. But uh, personal story, uh, when I was a kid, I I lived with uh, with parents who were drug addicts. Uh, A lot of my friends know this. Uh, they were drug addicts through and through. I mean, they did every kind of drug you can think of, and they did everything they could to get their hands on those drugs. So I must have been m- maybe six-ish years old at the time, and my dad actually drove me with him to South LA, uh, to South Los Angeles, to buy crack cocaine. Those parenting skills, though, him and my mom used to go to places uh, like Lakewood, or they'd go to Watts, and there was this one night where uh, where he took me with him and and told me to stay in the car. Uh, but I'm, I guess I must have had to really go to the bathroom. I, I don't remember exactly what happened, but he was taking too long or something like that. And so I got out of the car. I actually opened the car door and got out. And I remember seeing like three or four really big dudes around my dad talking to him. And when I called out to my dad, the, the guys that were with him started yelling at him. They were like, you brought your fucking kid with you. Like, get the fuck out of here. What's wrong with you? And so like they were like screaming at him. And I remember that as being this this unbelievably horrifying moment. I had no idea what was happening. So he throws me back into the car and just speeds off. Uh, he's looking. I remember him looking behind him in the rearview mirror. I, I guess we're like throwing shit at the car. And it was this like awful scene. It happened so quickly. And my father was really angry and he was really freaked out. He's screaming at me. And, and I just have no idea like what's happening. Like my little brain couldn't comprehend what was going on. It just wasn't up for this. And so as we're driving off, like I remember sitting in that car just watching the glow of streetlights go by and for the first time in my life just kind of phasing out like have you ever just sat in a passenger seat and like got lost in the scenery as it flashes by you like when you're driving like you sort of have almost a blankness in your mind it could be like after a fight with somebody important to you but you're just not all there well that's what I did that night in that car and it was one of the most vivid and early memories I have growing up sort of removing myself from the moment and and being an onlooker, as it were, to all of the degradation around me, and without even knowing I'm doing it, I kind of, I mean, I was experiencing part of the dilapidation of society, like on every street corner that passed by, and for the first time in my life, just glimpsing the horrors of the real world, right, of adulthood, of the grown-up world, or at least what I thought the grown-up world was. So I I look back at that night, and it was just a real shattering of my innocence as a kid. I, I had to transition into being an adult very early in my life because of shit like this, and And the scene from It Follows just flooded me with that memory. Now, when we get into the way I interpret this film, I'm going to impress upon you the idea that this movie is all about transitioning from adolescence into adulthood. And from that transition, glimpsing the idea of one's mortality. That death is the inevitable end. It's the finality of that transition. And the horror of that but for now this this driving sequence aside from being extremely haunting in my mind sort of speaks to the traversing from childhood to adulthood being a passerby and experiencing a kind of erosion a transition really of of seeing the real world for the first time understanding the weight of the real world that's what this scene seems to reflect to me and it echoes the larger narrative of the film but i digress so the music, uh, the music in It Follows was done by a composer named Rich Vreeland, uh, a.k.a. Disaster Piece, who prior to this movie uh, primarily worked on video games. He composed soundtracks for games like Fez and Hyper Light Drifter. And in fact, the director of It Follows, uh, David Robert Mitchell, apparently was a big fan of the game Fez and, and as a result brought on Rich Vreeland. So the soundtrack really stands out. It's very experimentary, very dominant, even for a horror film. And I thought it was really cool that they got someone who had a predominant you know, predominantly video game background to compose for a horror movie. It sort of worked out beautifully in my opinion. Another thing I enjoyed in this movie uh, is the ambiguity of the monster. I like the idea of a monster that's tied to a question mark, right? It's not thoroughly explained. You sort of know what it is, but you're still left with questions. So when it follows, you have no idea of this thing's origins. It has elements of like an incubus and a succubus. It's sort of like a ghost, but not really because it's corporeal. It changes forms. You know, it can it can be felt, it bleeds, so you're not really sure what the hell it is. It doesn't really fit any traditional monster like a goblin or a werewolf or a vampire. And as a side note, one of the things I didn't like about the film was the fact that it bled and that it could be hurt. I thought it would be a lot more sinister and maybe even more along the line of its other attributes if for all intents and purposes it was unstoppable or undamageable at least. I also enjoyed the connection between the characters, Jay and her sister Kelly and their friends. I kind of feel like horror films don't focus enough on getting you invested in the characters. So a lot of times when they die, you're just kind of like, whatever, you know, Um, this is why we're traditionally more emotionally invested in dramas or romance characters, because those characters really need to matter in those sorts of genres. But I feel like somewhere down the line, the decision was made in horror films that like characters just don't need to matter, that there's no need to really develop them. And I didn't really get that vibe in this film. I felt like you got to know them. You got to know about their history together as they grew up. And I kind of dug that. Interesting side note, the names of Jay and her sister, Kelly, are actually a tribute to the original Queen of Horror, Jamie Lee Curtis, and her sister, Kelly Curtis. In fact, there's a ton of Halloween imagery in this film. Even in the Detroit ride scene that I discussed a minute ago, the sequence ends with the teen standing somewhat iconically in front of a dilapidated house, bringing back memories of Laurie Strode in front of the famous Haddonfield House. The scene where Jay is in the classroom, staring out of the window, is almost exactly the same sequence as Laurie Strode in Halloween. When I was doing the research for this film, I came across a YouTube comment that, that sort of hit the nail on the head. It, it described It Follows as a kind of love letter to the 80s horror, and I really like that. It didn't seem like the movie was trying to rip off anything. Um, it felt like it was paying homage, and that made me only like it more. Another thing I enjoyed about the film is, is the sort of timelessness, the timeless aspect of the movie. Like, you can't really tell what year it is or really even what decade it is in the film. There's older CRT televisions. Uh, all the stuff you see them watching is in black and white. The cars look like they're from the 80s or early 90s. But then you have Jay's friend, Yara, who has, like, an e-reader. Like, she's reading from an e-reader. And by the way, without jumping too far ahead the passages she reads aloud to her friends throughout the movie from her rereader reader are 100, without a doubt 100% the key to deciphering what this movie is actually all about. But we'll get into that a little bit later. So all of this kind of throws everything off. You can't tell what time frame they're in. And this, again, adds to that sort of dreamlike atmosphere perpetuated throughout the film. And I like that because you're not really tied to particular styles or mannerisms associated with a certain time period. It sort of creates a larger canvas from which you can draw out a story. And as a moviegoer, it allows you just really to kind of narrow your focus. So those are the things I enjoyed about the film, but let's get to the fun stuff. Let's appreciate this film as we would a good scotch. We already mixed it with our coke, as it were, we enjoyed it. I told you what I dug about the film, but now let's take some time to talk about what this movie is really about. What it symbolizes and represents about our collective fears. I mentioned earlier that this movie seems to me to be about transitioning from adolescence into adulthood and then from that transition, glimpsing the idea of one's mortality. This is not a film about sexually transmitted diseases. If I see another review about how this movie is about the stigma of STDs, I'm gonna find that person, I'm just gonna follow them around, for the rest of their life, whispering in their ear how myopic that is. Like, I'm actually going to become the monster from It Follows and just slowly follow someone around and harass that person for the rest of my life because this film is not about STDs. And you know how I know it's not about STDs? Think of the sequence where Jay's friend Yara is reading those weird passages from her compact. They kind of happen out of nowhere, right, in the movie. They're they're unprompted by anything else in the sequence, and they serve as a sort of cipher for decoding what this film is actually about. So here's the first one.
1: Listen to this. I think that if one is faced with inevitable destruction, if a house is falling upon you, for instance, one must feel a great longing to sit down, close one's eyes, and wait. Come what may.
0: So, question. Have you ever had, like, life just throw a complete bomb at you? Where, like, things have just become so heavy and so burdensome in your life. Like, the gravity of life's weight just starts crushing you. And I don't mean... Like, just things aren't going your way, right? I don't mean anything like that. I mean, like, just the raw anxiety of existence seeming inescapable. That life is just too much. That death inevitably awaits you. You know what I mean? That, that deep dirge that we all sing at least once in our lives. I mean, at some point life will inevitably present you with some kind of overbearing burden or weight on your soul that seems inescapable. Now, I don't know if that happens to everyone, but I gotta think that it happens to a lot of people. It certainly has happened to me, Uh, particularly when I I no longer identified as a Christian, Uh, when I deconverted from my faith. I now saw the world as a place where I have really just a finality, right, that my existence ends. And if you've ever experienced anything like this kind of weight in your life, then I think you can understand what's going on in this passage, that if a house is collapsing in on you, there's like this little part of you that almost just wants it to happen. You know what I mean? Like just to get it over with to have any kind of relief, even if it's your end. Like that little part of you that's just like, just do it already, you know, get it over with. That's the kind of devastation we're talking about in this passage. And I think to some extent this can be interpreted as the devastation of transition. These larger transitions in life, such as becoming an adult, can often feel crushing, especially if they're life-altering, hormone-raging, real-world-facing transitions saying goodbye to innocence and hello to the real world, where two things are assured, death and taxes. And as a side note, this passage, uh, along with the other one that Yara reads at the end of the film, is actually from Dostoevsky's The Idiot. And I guess to me, if the film were trying to tell us something about the stigma of STDs, I think this scene and then the scene at the end of the film where she reads another passage with similar sentiment makes very little sense. I mean, there are clearly sexual themes in the film. I'm not saying this film is only about transition and one's inevitable demise. In fact, one of the things I I sort of forgot to mention that I enjoyed about the movie was how it took the sort of sex is evil trope that pervades the world of horror and sort of gave it steroids, right? It, It sort of smothered you with it. This was extremely purposeful, it utilized the banality of sort of villainizing penetration or demonizing the enjoyment of sexual experience. It's sort of like the writer and director was like, okay, well, why don't we just literally make this the fucking villain? Like, by literalizing it, they were speaking to its triteness, to its staleness as a trope. Notice that the e-reader that Yara reads her passages from, kind of looks like a birth control compact. And I think that's purposeful. One could surmise that the haunting atmosphere in this film establishes a kind of link between sexuality and otherworldliness, right? It's this mystic thing when you're a young person. I mean, well, shit, even, even to some extent, like when you're an adult, it's a mystic thing. But it comes with a lot of um, anxiety, sexual anxiety, like sexual fears and disconnection. These are all what I would consider to be somewhat surface level themes in the film. I think of the climax, nope. Pun intended the climax of the film where Jay's fighting the monster uh, in the large pool, right? Which itself has some symbolism that we'll talk about in a second But that ending sequence when they seemingly defeat the monster and the pool becomes engulfed in red blood I mean, let's not be poetic. This is imagery of a period of a woman getting her period This kind of shift from a younger innocence to sexually maturing into a woman So, I mean, I think this film clearly has a lot to do with sex, but sex within the larger context of transition as being one part, even a dominant part, of a maturation process that inevitably leads back into the ground, to death. I mean, mortality and sex are inexorably linked. Think of the part of the film where Greg dies the monster essentially rapes him to death in the form of his own mother. I mean, what a creepy way to go out. The scene that I just mentioned, where Jay is fighting the monster in the pool at the end, he takes the form of her father. I mean, that's purposeful, it may may be somewhat Oedipal, but I think it really speaks to the idea that your parents' sexual actions are the reason that you exist in the first place and they're the reason that you're going to die when this is all over. I mean think about it, your existence and ultimately the fact that you're gonna die are a direct result of two people having sex. They made you and they're the reason that you get to face that monster that's slowly trailing behind you every second of every day of your life. So sex and mortality sort of do a dance together in this film, there's, there's sort of an amalgamation of issues going on here. The monster in many ways is kind of a placeholder for some of our sexual psychology. Like I said, it takes the form of Greg's mom and then rapes him to death. It takes the form of Jay's dad. It takes the form of the young peeping Tom kid who spies on Jay when she's in her pool. It takes the form of a young battered and bruised woman with broken teeth and tattered clothes and she's peeing on herself. This is reflective of the dirtiness or the uncleanliness that one may feel once they've started having sex at a young age. But the monster also takes the form of an old woman, an old woman in a hospital gown. So I think the film uses the monster in two ways. One, to explore the sexual psychology of adolescence, and to remind you that death is coming for you. That the innocence of your childhood is now gone, and you're in the meat grinder just like everyone else. Think of the scene where Jay and Hugh go to that movie together. When they're waiting in line, they decide to play a game where they pick someone around them that they would want to swap lives with. And who does Hugh pick? So there's this appeal to looking backwards, as it were, to an easier time when things were simpler and you had your whole life ahead of you. And this is echoed by a a lot of symbolism in the film. Notice throughout the film, the juice boxes uh, with straws in them, the, the ice cream, the Coke cans with straws in them, the perfectly cut sandwiches like your mom used to make when you were a kid. Consequently, we see that sandwich in her room mold over the course of the film, signifying the degradation of youthful innocence. I mean, these are all symbolic elements that gesture towards being a kid being innocent and young, being safe. Think of the pool. The opening scene of the movie is Jay floating around in a pool. It's her safe zone. It's where she feels comfortable. It's her innocence, essentially. This is why after the monster has been after her for a while and eventually ends up killing Greg, the camera pans over to her pool and shows it being broken, being tarnished. There's even a kind of vaginal imagery in it. Her sexual experiences have cracked her innocence. She's transitioning out of this old, comfortable world and into a new one. This is why at the climax of the film, she tries to go back into a pool to fight the monster. This is her safe zone, right? She's sort of trying to do what Hugh says he wanted to do in that movie theater, to go back to the way things used to be, to go back into that bubble where everything is safe and cozy and knowable. But she's unable to do that. She and all of her friends are on their own. This is their own journey into adulthood, and nobody can do that for them. This is why there's almost no adults throughout the entire film, and the ones that are in the film typically are blurry. Like, there's this stark absence of grown-ups precisely because this transition into adulthood can feel so isolationary. I mean, hell, even if you have parents who love you, right, and protect you, you can still feel alone during adolescence. It's like, no one understands me. You wouldn't understand, mom. it's, It's kind of the emo phase of growing up, right? And when you think about it, you ever notice in the movie that Jay and her friends Never try to do any research about the monster. Like they don't look it up on the internet. They don't go to a library. They don't crack open any old dusty books. They don't do it because it's familiar, right? It's expected. What the monster represents, everyone already knows about. We already know we're gonna die eventually, and we already know that at some point after our teenage years end, the weight of the world is there waiting for us. So I thought that was significant. But let's go beyond adolescence. Let's go beyond the transition from adolescence to adulthood. Let's talk about that thing that's always with you, always following you around everywhere you go. And that's death. That's your own mortality. That's the thing that no matter how far you try to run from it, it will always be on its way to you. That no matter how hard you try and distract yourself by the vast array of human experience you have at your disposal, your death is locked down and certain. And that's worth pondering. While I think all horror films are to some degree about death, This one reminds you that death is a stalker, that it's slow and it's patient, that it's unexpected. It's not about how you die. This isn't Final Destination or Saw that we're talking about. It's the contemplation that you're going to die and one day you're no longer going to be a person.
1: When there's torture, there's pain and wounds, physical agony, and all this distracts the mind from mental suffering so that one is tormented by the wounds until the moment of death. And the most terrible agony may not be in the wounds themselves, but in knowing for certain that within an hour, then within 10 minutes, then within half a minute, now, at this very instant, your soul will leave your body and you will no longer be a person. And that this is certain. The worst thing is that it is certain.
0: This scene just struck me uh, as, as very Heideggerian, right? We're, we're beings unto death. Like, have you ever just sat and really pondered the idea that one day you're not going to exist? That sort of sea of infinite nothingness that's a heartbeat away. Like, even as you're listening to this podcast right now. I think for most people, this this sort of happens for the first time when they're a bit younger, right? And it's, it's devastating. This is why we've built entire structures of belief to combat this monster. Oh death, where is thy sting? That sort of thing. Many religious narratives exist, in large part, to serve as an antidote to the poison of non-existence, as a way of declawing the monster. We tell stories about how death is not the end and how we're going to live on forever. We also inundate ourselves with distractions all day long, and we do this collectively, as a society, every single day, because it's horrifying to think about no longer being a person an eye. Now, pragmatically, of course, we have to survive, we have to go to work, we have to take care of our families, but it seems like so much of our life is built to be a distraction. Like we're getting ourselves ready for a show that we don't ever really want to think about. But maybe we should. Maybe we should stop in our tracks, turn around, and take a long, hard look into the eyes of that monster that's constantly following us. It just strikes me as more noble and courageous than running, than in weaving together these complex religious apparatus that make you think that you've beaten this monster. And don't get me wrong, that's not to say that there's not value in religious interpretations of the world or that religion is a bad thing, but let's be honest, on let's say a Christian view of the world, there really is no idea of death. Like, you don't really die, you just transition from one form, bodily, to another, spiritual. You are still existent. You've never gone away. So if death is supposed to be the end, then you haven't really died. In fact, if you hold to the dominant Christian view on these things, you will never not exist. You will always be an existent thing. And while that may seem extremely exciting for some, there's definitely something that you lose in believing this. See, when you stare into that abyss, that that finality of your being, you sort of can't unsee it. This is why Hugh and everyone else in the film who's seen the monster can't unsee it. And I think when you, when you call Contemplate the end of your existence, you discover things, you learn things about yourself and your place in the universe, you contemplate the world in its rawest form. And this, in turn, paradoxically allows for a kind of authentic self creation. Your narrative, your story, is more of your own if at any moment you really believe it could be lights out. I think when you grasp your own finitude, it puts all those other things that I labeled as distractions into perspective. You, you sort of see them differently. You value them differently. You understand that the value of your relationships with other people, with those whom you love, they're valuable precisely because they end. Precisely because there will be a moment when all of these things are taken from you. It's interesting, if, if you were to ask me like, I don't know, six years ago, what I thought the meaning of life was. I probably would have said something like to find God or to love other people, something like that. And if you ask me today what I think the meaning of life is, the closest answer I can give in anything like a normative sense that would apply to more than just me would be to learn how to die, to learn how to die well, how to have a four score and ten on your gravestone, whatever that means to you. Maybe how to understand wisdom before you go, to love wisdom, Philosophia, right, the love of wisdom from which we get the word philosophy. In fact, Plato calls philosophy a meditation on death. It's something worth meditating on. How do I make sense of the predicament of life in light of its eventual finality? This is worth your time, and this is the story of It Follows. It's no coincidence that Yara reads this particular passage from Dostoevsky's The Idiot at the end of the movie. So in a sense, this film is about emerging from a time of innocence and asking, how do I make sense of all of this? But it's also about wrestling with a transition that takes you out of a bubble. Death becomes manifest, and you have to struggle with its reality, with it always clinging to your person, with it following you. And so the challenge of it follows is to take that monster, look at it in the face, and examine yourself in light of what you find. William Butler Yeats once wrote that it takes more courage to examine the dark corners of your own soul than it does for a soldier to fight on a battlefield. And I, I think this film is, is kind of an homage to that kind of a challenge. And so I offer that challenge to you. So this has been my interpretation of the film It Follows, uh, but I also talked to some of my friends, and we had a long discussion and hangout regarding the film. I think it would yeah, be interesting if you enjoyed what you heard so far. So I'm going to uh, just hop right into that, and hopefully it'll be useful to you and you'll enjoy it. Here you go. So I'm just going to throw out a really simple question. What did you guys think of the movie?
1: I thought it was fantastic. As a person who's watched a lot of the old-school horror films I feel like it was really giving a shout out and pay- paying homage to that kind of horror but stepping it up and making it extra scary even for today so thought it was a all-around good horror.
0: So you, you watched it with your kid um did they just yes. never like that sex may be the most horrifying thing on the planet to them after seeing this <laughs> film now?
1: It is really interesting because you know she's 13 and that's right around the time when you start to dabble in those things. So there was a lot of jokes being made between her and her friends, you know, like, this is why you don't have sex. <laughs> and, <laughs> um, you know, I, I thought it was really funny, because it reminded me of those urban legends that you hear about all the time, um, that try to make you scared about parking alone with a boy or um, trying to drink at a party. Uh, it's it's really funny. It's, it's, it's going along with those a little bit. But I think that there was something deeper to this particular film. Um, jokes aside, with teenagers, <laughs> um, they did get into more more in-depth conversations, Um, especially when you have people around their age group talking about philosophy so in-depth in the movie. You know, they started asking questions. We started Googling stuff. Uh, it, It made them actually try to understand the film on a higher level. So even though there was those jokey moments, there was also those deeper moments, and I think that was fantastic. But yeah, there was a consensus that they probably shouldn't have sex for a while because... You never know. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, I uh, I feel like the film took the very um, common trope that sex is evil and sex is bad, and sort of smothered you with it. Right? It took that sort of banality that's in a lot of '80s and '90s horror films, the the stuff that you see made fun of in Scream, for example, going back to kind of our last podcast, and it, it basically like turned it into the monster. It like it literally said, okay, let's take this trope and not necessarily add it as like just another film that has that trope but let's just throw it in the audience's face and make it the fucking monster and then in light of i think of a larger uh, a larger purpose a larger narrative of the story I, I don't think that this movie really was all about sex i mean it clearly had sexual themes and there were sexual lots of sexual elements but i think that was one part of a of a, a a larger context that that we'll get into um what about you antonio what did you think and this was your first time watching it today right
2: it was um i think that the i really enjoyed the movie it consciously it's 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 an extremely aware movie it consciously throws back to a bunch of kind of retro tropes and references um while also consciously trying to innovate on them and avoid a lot of the mistakes that that cheaper horror movies fall into um sex for example i think is one of those throwbacks i think that it's a reference to the way other horror movies play on sex i think if in a deeper analysis of the movie the movie is actually very very little about sex in reality i think the main theme of the movie has a much broader existential kind of flavor um, and sex is just kind of the framing device that throws back to other horror movies I particularly liked that they tried to uh, generate menace through tone, th- through uh, very carefully established camera shots, through uh, the colors that various characters wore in various scenes, um, they, and, and not through a whole lot of uh, violence, gore, jump scares, etc. Cetera, et cetera um the or even a scary looking monster you know the the scariness of it was kind of its implacability its mutability and the notion that something in a that, that is in a human body and behaves in a way that we kind of expect humans to behave is nonetheless totally alien that's like it's an uncanny valley kind of uh scare is the is the what they're trying to generate um so yeah really liked the movie uh thought that the it, it, honestly the cinematography reminded me a lot of another it's not exactly a horror movie it's a zombie movie um fido if you've never seen that absolutely recommend it um really really carefully constructed um color scheme in particular is one of the things i noticed about the movie another thing i noticed about the movie was that it, in again in kind of throwing back to to earlier films as well as kind of anticipating its own future maybe the movie's timeless. I don't know if you you noticed, but there's all kinds of anachronistic, uh, contradictory uh, elements in the decor, in, you know, the the cars the characters drive, et cetera, et cetera, that really tries to place the movie out of time as we know it. And I think this, again, sort
0: of reflects toward the more existential themes of the movie. So for for the timelessness piece, um, yeah i I actually really like that I felt it added to kind of the atmospheric dreamlight state that the film sort of put you in through the ambiance of the music which we'll get into which was unbelievably experimentary and and kind of on the forefront um I've, I've yet to go to a horror movie where I feel where I felt like the music was such a um like a hand-in-hand partner with the rest of the film. I felt like it, I mean, without that score, that film would not be anywhere near as good as it was. Um, but in terms of the timelessness, yeah. Um, I think that it. if you want to get somewhat poetic, it kind of, you know, it ties sexuality to a kind of uh, an otherworldliness, kind of a mystic uh, 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 sort of uh, context to it. I think that um, when you're bound to like 70s, uh, I think Jonah kind of hit this, but when you're bound to like 70s um, sort of uh settings, that I think that takes away from the film. I think that this allows you, it allowed me at least to focus. So it's interesting that for Jonah, it 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 was harder for him to focus for that. I felt like for me, the more separated it got from a timeline that I could identify with, I felt less inclined to look for things to identify what timeline it was in. I, I know it sounds really weird, but I was like, oh, this feels like a dream this feels like a dream, I get it. And I, I just kind of let that happen. I, I do want to ask Jonah, the, so just to be clear, the fact that the film had a timeless element to you, like was distracting?
3: It didn't distract so much that I couldn't enjoy it. I What I felt was that if it had picked and adhered to a specific timeline, I wouldn't have enjoyed the film less, you know what I mean, like, it, it didn't make it what the fact that it was ambiguous, it was cool, and it was experimental.
1: So, I think it added to the tone, um, because the tone of the movie is, it, it's, you're confused, there's something weird happening, you can't really put your finger on it, something strange about the whole thing, and the timelessness, I think, added to the what the fuck moment to it, you know, you're sitting there like, where are we, what's happening? What it, what in the hell is going on here? That confusion is added with that timelessness, I think. So I I enjoyed it. It it I did notice it and I guess in some ways I was distracted because at one point um, I'm like, "Wait, that car's from the 70s." But oh, wait, but that car's kind of new. And we were discussing, "What is this shell thing?" So we did discuss that and it did distract in some ways, but it added to that what the fuck is going on moment. And um so for me, it just added to the tone of the movie, even though it might have been slightly distracting, I kind of enjoyed that. Because you're trying to solve a mystery, and that's generally, you're not going to solve this mystery, but that's generally what you enjoy, is you're trying to pick things apart and figure out what to do. So,
3: I guess an interesting question I want to ask is, are the are the characters, this is kind of stupid, but are the characters self-aware of that timelessness? Like, do they feel weird and, and unsettled? by the fact that like they don't because that could also be seen as a metaphor for a sense of belonging and when you're a teenager you don't know where you belong and you don't relate to anything and you could say that if we're going to talk later about adults and growing into adulthood you know like you're always cooler than your parents so there's this element of this is a world that I don't belong in this I'm living in an adult world right now and I'm still a child. I don't know. There's there's a lot that can be said. Uh.
0: I think you're onto something. I, I really think you're onto something. That's that to me is one of the larger parts of the film. I never really thought of that actually. Uh, I never thought of the fact that the timelessness is part of. Uh, well, and what Vera said that timelessness adds to the question mark of the film because when you're watching this movie, there is kind of a question mark lingering. There's a lot of them. You just kind of feel like what's going on, right? I I said in the beginning of my podcast that I, I'm hard pressed to think of another movie that's better to go into than this one, not knowing anything about it. If you go into this film not knowing anything about it, I I think it adds infinitely to the enjoyment precisely because of the issues of timelessness and all of this kind of contradictory stuff. They have CRT televisions. They only show black and white stuff. Like if you notice all the stuff that they watch on the TV is only black and white.
3: That's the thing. That, I mean, you could say a sophisticated person only watches old movies or only listens to old music or you can still drive old cars, you know, so, and you can have old houses and run down neighborhoods. The phone was really the only solidly anachronistic element for me. That was the only thing that, because everything else exists in this world. The fact that the cell phone was the, you know what I'm saying? That all the other things that they have, you can still uh, have, we have in our own world. Sure. That, that to
2: me, was actually one of the most interesting things. And it's actually really cool to see this spectrum of interpretations on the timelessness element here, because I actually drew something completely different away from that. And that is that um, the timelessness to me wasn't so much to make things dreamlike or disorienting or um, frame the film in some way, so much as um, it seemed to me to, to essentialize the movie. In other words, to say to to say that the, to, to express that the message of the of the film is beyond any particular frame of reference. It's, it's talking to something that is core to our humanity. Um, and there's a bunch of different examples of how they sort of set this up, if in, in my opinion. For example, the phone is I think a representation in some ways of the future because it doesn't exist at the time that the film was released. There's nothing like that out there in currently in the world. And so that this is a representation of something that could be in the near future, right? But at the same time, if you wind the clock back, um, you can see all kinds of interesting uh, references. You you see the the stuff from the fifties, you see cars from the seventies, you see various things from the eighties sort of uh, framed in, in the backgrounds. When they go out to the beach house um and and there's that old mansion and these are things that are probably more like turn of the century maybe over 100 years old um it it, it, the the elements of the film are set up to span a an extremely wide and and mutually exclusive uh period of time and because of this i think that it that it serves to try to push the viewer into looking only at the actual narrative elements as opposed to trying to frame this in a broader world. This is almost a fairy tale as it were, you know. This is something that that could take place in any kind of sort of magical realist sort of environment. And and in that sense it transcends time. It's not merely timeless. The timelessness is actually an important element to point to the fact that these are talking about bigger themes than any one era experience, it's something that's core to the human experience.
0: I, there's a kind of a couple things going on here. I feel like we're dancing around really deep issues. One of them being that um, this movie sort of inexorably links sexuality to death. One of the big things in this film that I felt was just really, to me, was one of the larger points was the the idea that your mortality follows you everywhere you go, that you're going to die. And sex is inexorably linked to mortality. The fact that your your parents had intercourse right, is the reason that you exist. It's why you're here and it's why you're going to die. It's why eventually uh, you're not going to be any longer because of an action of your parents. When the monster takes the form uh, I mean, of f- span the spectrum, a young person, a middle-aged person, and an old person. Uh, an old person at the end of their life slowly following you. I think that's important. Um, so the the monster is almost like, in some ways, a placeholder for our, our sexual psychology. And I think that that's part of, I think, a larger conversation about the idea of, of, of dying, about having it follow you. And I think the cipher for this in the film is the passages that Yara reads from her little compact. Um, they're from Dostoevsky's The Idiot. And uh, they're uh, they're not about STDs. Don't know if you noticed that. They're not about STDs. I one of the things I just got really, I, I, in the theater I remember leaving. Like this is I'm just gonna tell you a story. Uh, the like I saw it twice in the theater, and the second time I was in the theater, like people were talking about oh, it's about STDs, STDs, and like, I I literally wanted to kill somebody. I was like it's fucking movie is not about STDs. It's, that's not the point of this film at all. And then I had someone else in the theater be like, oh, this film wasn't that scary. And then I just, I almost climbed a clock tower and killed like 20 people. So, uh, you know, I, anyway, I just thought I'd share that with you. But um, yeah, I mean, there's a lot going on, right? The, this, the monster, I think to me, the way I interpret this is the monster is an amalgamation of issues um, that I think on a surface level could be described as differing aspects of our sexual psychology, especially to an adolescent. Um, but I think that the horror of it is in glimpsing a kind of transition, a transition from adolescence to adulthood, to, to a place where you realize that you're in the meat grinder just like everybody else and that you're going to die. Um, that your bubble is broken, right? That, that uh, you know, that you're no longer in, in the world of innocence. Think, think of Jay when she's in her pool. The movie starts with her just kind of floating around in her pool. That's her safe zone. That's her place of innocence. Um, and at the end of the movie, where does she go to fight the monster? She goes back to the place that's knowable to her, that, that makes her feel comfortable, which is a pool. Also, also, water is the
3: source of life.
1: But also, I don't know if you guys noticed, but her um, her pool that she was swimming in originally at one point is like – breaks break broken and and there's no water in it anymore um and then she goes into that bigger pool so um i think not that only does that reflects on adolescence a lot
0: <laughs> sure not only that but that same scene uh Shira, if you actually So I, I added it to my podcast the break in the pool this may just be me reading way too much into this i've been like editing this for like six hours but um like the the actual break in the pool is almost like the imagery is almost like a uh, like a vagina, right? like the break in it. If you just look at it, I feel like I'm going to come off like a psychopath by saying this, but no, if you no, go back... no, absolutely. Um, okay, all right, thank you, Antonio. Yeah, to,
2: me, to me, the pool, to me, the pool absolutely represents the womb. It, it is it is 100 a representation of the uterus in in both scenes where where it appears prominently. It's it, that that is absolutely what that is intended to symbolize, and the break in it is absolutely intended to symbolize like a a violent birth
0: well think about think about think about the ending sequence with uh, when they shoot the mo- or i guess yeah they shoot the the monster in the water uh what happens the uh the pool fills with blood i mean i've never like seen more of like like period imagery in a film if you go see that sequence and go look at it right it's the finality of the film it's the climax of the film no pun intended It's the climax of the film and um you know her safe zone is shattered Right. I mean, you, you, I guess you can make that argument in the middle of the film where the pool is broken after she goes and sees those guys on that boat. Right. That's right after that sequence. And I, I, what did you guys think? Did she actually go and like sleep with those guys on the boat? I felt like that was unclear.
1: I think she did. I think she did. And I think they died. <laughs> I don't think they lasted that long. Um, I think this is one of the things where um, the guy that she slept with was really overthinking things well he wanted to get someone strong that he thought could battle this so so as to protect himself in a way, you know. Um, she was like, okay, last minute decision, let's try to do this. But I, I did get the the feeling, because she came back with, she was all wet, like she'd gone in the water. Yeah. If she did decide to go back, she went in the water and was considering it at the very least. She was
3: but... crying, though. So she was either crying because of what the guilt of what she did or because she didn't have the courage to do it. And I'll add, while well, I have the con show, that uh the blood in the pool could also be signed as the hymen breaking it's like the end of virginity sure or yeah, miscarriage if the water is going to be a vagina then that would be- or even just straight at birth
0: yeah oh that's interesting okay so so let's 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 follow with that antonio so what what is i i, I kind of uh, was beginning to ask this a, l- a little while ago so so what what is this film about really to you like how do you interpret get, give me a Okay. Uh, a, a two, yeah. three minute, this is, bam, this is what I interpret the film to be about. Yeah,
2: the, the film, to me, is about, it's, it's an extremely primal film. Like I said, I think, I think the film takes pains to, to frame itself in a way that is very essentialist and tries to speak to core elements of human experience rather than trying to tell a particularly nuanced plot. And so the core of the film, to me, is about um, mortality. And it's, and it's about the human experience of mortality, specifically through reproduction, right? The notion of this mo- the monster symbolizes death or mortality. It's something that is always following you. It is slowly creeping up on you. You never know when it's going to eventually come up behind you and grab you. And once it gets you, it's extremely difficult to escape. And you're probably going to just be over. And the only way that you can avoid it is by passing it on to someone else and this this i think is a sim, is symbolic of of reproduction in some way you know you're you're you you attempt to escape your own mortality by having children effectively but the problem is that when you have children it passes the curse to them too they are now being stalked by the same thing that haunts you you can still see it and eventually it's going to come back and get you no matter how many other generations co- it goes through it will eventually work its way back up the chain to you Right. So, um, so to me, the, the movie is the, the sexual framings and all these are pretty much just window dressing at, at core, you know, and especially, I think in the, in the final, uh, scene of the movie or the second to last scene of the movie where, um, they're reading the Dostoevsky, the last line from Dostoevsky. Right. Um, that, that whole line is pretty much a, a re- restatement of the film's ethic. It's, it's about mortality. It is about the inevitability of of your destruction, of of the crumbling of the things that you know and you trust and so on. And, and so, ultimately, honestly, I view the film not so much as a horror movie, as, as an existential work, you know, an, an existential piece that happens to be framed as a horror movie. And there's a lot of ways in which I think the, the film emphasizes this, through through some of the way that it does its camera work, a lot of the camera work is very silent and is very and follows the characters around in in kind of mutely without without giving a whole lot of judgment. There's not like music playing in a lot of these scenes, um, and there isn't a whole lot of background or ambient noise. You can't hear the characters dialoguing with each other. It, the camera is just panning. It's just showing you things, right? Um, And I think that that this really emphasizes the existential quality of the film, that this is basically what life is about, you know, that life is is, you know, you're as as you grow into adulthood, you come to realize through, you know, as as you get your sexual life underway, I guess, um, that that you can you can strive for a sort of temporary immortality by passing your genes along as it were but at in the end the it is going to get you you know and there's nothing you can do about it
0: yeah Well shaira did you get the same vibe i i took 80% i'll say of the way antonio viewed this film is exactly how i took it the only difference between him and i i think would be the focus on um on the next generation and on birthing whereas i think it was more about transition from an early time to a later time and I'll, I'll kind of say why in a minute I, I think Antonio's as he's talking I'm getting a little frustrated because his conceptual analysis explains more of the damn film than mine but uh, but that's okay because I, I have some things that I think may be hard for him to explain so I'll get into this in a minute but what did did you take anything like that away like was mortality was death the thing that sort of stood out from you is uh, for you as kind of the main theme of the film
1: I love what Antonio said, I think it's fantastic. That's not what I took away from it, um, but I feel like he probably is more correct, if that is even a way of saying it because it's an interpretation of a, a work. Um, for me, I looked at it as more of a coming-of-age film. Um, you know, if when we, when we watch movies like Stand By Me and Now and Then, and obviously this is aging me, but um, when we watch movies like that, we are usually reflecting on two different lives. Lives We have the when we were about 12 or 13, and then we have all of a sudden you'll fast forward to when people are already got their careers going, they already own their homes. There, There's this huge gap where it just seems like it doesn't matter. Who cares? This This part doesn't matter. And I feel like that's what adulthood is. There's becoming an adult, and then there's realizing that you used to be a kid. (laughs) Those are the only moments that really matter in all of these coming-of-age films. And I felt that kind of vibe from this film in that we're reflecting on the fact that there is a change that we go through, and then it doesn't really matter after that. Nothing really matters after that. You've become an adult. Yay, it sucks. Welcome to the club. You're going to die soon. And I know it's a really messed up way of looking at what adulthood is, but that's how I've always reflected on becoming an adult you know
0: yeah there's a i'm sorry antonio real quick there's a there's a scene in the movie that perfectly reflects what you're saying when they're in the theater and they play that game uh you know who would you rather be and who does Hugh say he'd rather be he'd rather be that child right he has a whole life ahead of him right and i think she makes the comment well like you're only 21 years old you know and i i think that's precisely happening to him because he's he's in that state of of shifting right um yeah i think that that's a that's a really good explanation go ahead antonio i'm sorry
2: I was going to say one of the really interesting things for the movie uh, in the movie, I thought was there are no adults, like you see adults, but they don't have any lines of dialogue. you barely see they're them. blurred they're blurred yeah. when you see them most most yeah of them. they 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 have absolutely no presence in the film. There's nobody who's like over twenty one basically in in the film in any significant way um except for the the beast it um which occasionally takes you know the form of, of an adult or an old person um and i there's obviously a bunch of different ways you can read that the way that i actually read it was the notion of denying gradations in development beyond adolescence in other words to to me the takeaway was we're all still kids inside this thing is chasing us and we're never we don't we don't actually manage to we don't come of age we don't escape our adolescence we don't graduate to adulthood that that's this mute pillar. It's this cipher. It's something that doesn't really exist. The only things right? that actually exist are the
0: 17-year-old inside the 41-year-old or what have you. That's interesting. I, I took it as um, something like the fact that this transitionary period can feel so isolationary, that it can feel alone, that you feel like even with the greatest family, even with family who love you and who who are there for you, it's something you do on your own. It's something that you can't really have other people do for you, adults do for you. It is your coming of age story and therefore it feels to many people, I think to most people who grow up and and go through adolescence, extremely isolationary. Um, So that's kind of how I interpreted the fact that you don't have a large um, adult, you don't don't have a large adult presence at all in the film.
3: There's a reason why the monster will start following you once you have sex, and it's because I see that sex is the way, it's trying to say, and and this is a very cynical and uh, uh, unpleasant interpretation that probably is only affects me, but that having sex is your way of becoming an adult. You know, there's all these idioms about, oh, you're a man now, I'm gonna make a man out of you, and that all relates to sex. So, it's, if you don't have sex, you're not a real adult, and you're still a child, even if you're, you know, the whole 40-year-old virgin, like, the whole thing is you're just a kid, you don't understand life, so once you have, once you stick it in them, you no, know, whichever hole that, you, you know, you prefer, that is, that becomes your way of becoming an adult, and you won't be one until you have that experience.
0: Do you feel that that was normative in the film, or was that something that it was trying to build off of and describe as part of the American upbringing? Do you think that was normative or do you think it was like like descriptive?
3: Descriptive, because it, it's not, I haven't, I've seen that theme in many, many, many texts, not just film.
0: In other words, I guess what I'm asking is like, the film's not trying to say, hey, in order to be an adult and to make this transition, like one of the only ways is to have sex. Do you think that it's, it's implying that, or is it just utilizing that as something that's pretty commonplace?
3: A little bit of both. Can I say that? Yeah. Because the last shot in the movie is a really extended shot of them holding hands. Um. So why is that so important? It's because it's the relationship aspect. Because it's moved on from sex to intimacy. It's, now they're having a relationship rather than just having sex. So it's... And I had to watch it with subtitles because I had to turn the sound down a little more than I normally would. And so because of the subtitles, I could hear it says, you know, kids chattering in the background. So on top of them holding hands, it it indicates that they're still kids of that, you know, because it's like there's two things going on. The, the audio, what's being communicated uh, audibly and visually, and they're two different messages. If you blindfolded your eye, you know, if you covered your eyes and so all you could do is hear, you would hear kids. And if you covered yours, all you would see them is holding hands. So that's telling two different they're they're unrelated messages. That
1: even might go into what Antonio was saying earlier, where we're all still children, no matter what inside of us, that's that goes along with that too. And it kind of creeps me out.
0: <laughs> yeah, to add on to that, there's a lot of imagery in this film that goes back to I mean, even when they're in their adolescence they're going throughout the course of this film trying to figure out what's going on with the monster, they're I mean, you ever like the little things. So like when they're drinking soda out of cocans there's straws in them. Like that. That's that's important to me. I mean, I, I, the only time I drunk like coke with a straw was when I was a kid. The only time I had a juice box, like in the, the movie when Yara's drinking the juice box, you do that as a kid. When um, when uh, Jay is in her room, like tr- like locked herself in her room, she has like this perfectly cut sandwich, like it, like your mom would make, and it slowly molds over the course of the film. It's almost like the film's trying to. What I took from that is like the film's trying to tell you like there's this degradation process going on. You're maturing. You're growing out of this. This is, this is now going to become foreign to you. It's old. There's now this new thing that is, is facing you. Um, There was some other stuff. Shit. I forget. I'll have to look at my notes, but there was some other stuff. There's a lot of things of ice cream. When they're trying to make Jay feel better, you know, they give her ice cream. There's all these little things that you do with kids. And I think that kind of adds to like, we're all still kind of kids. I thought that just was out of place. Like it was so out of place in the film. It really stuck out to me when they were all sitting down in that circle with Hugh and like, they all have like, it looks like this perfect little play date like they all have these little coke cans with like straws in them and i was thinking like it's like this is like kid stuff <laughs> i feel like a major part of the a major theme in the
2: movie is sort of the reestablishment of a childlike intimacy right i feel like this is kind of the loop that the movie takes you through because as as everybody's mentioned you know there's all these allusions to childhood in in various ways there's sort of an implication that maybe we're all kids inside and from the very beginning of the movie, there's a yearning expressed for the simplicity and the and the liberty of childhood, the, ab- the ability to not have to worry about um, other things. Right. Uh, as as Hugh says in um, about the kid in the movie theater, you know, he he wants he wishes he were even though he's just a young adult, he wishes he were a kid and the reason why he wishes he were is because you know kids don't have as many responsibilities they're more carefree they don't know what's out there right and and you know in in the handholding scene at the end i feel like is kind of a symbolic notion as well as of course the friends working together the notion of friends working together to sort of get past this crisis right is is that um you know we face our mortality and that's an incredibly as as you said noah an isolating experience you know and we feel very alone like we're the only person who is able to see this thing coming for us you know we we can see it in a way that isn't real for the people around us with respect to us specifically right and and the way that we overcome that is not by beating it because you can't it's coming for you no matter what you do And, and so the way that you overcome that is you share the knowledge of that with someone else and you, you move past the depression that that, you know, that that sort of initiates and, and move back to sort of a childlike intimacy where you say, we're, you know, we're going to hold on to each other and that's what's going to make it okay, despite the inevitability. That's
3: what I liked about the movie was that tone. Everyone is quiet. They talk softly. They're 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 just the even like the filter lens was a little muted uh everything is just kind of like sedated and they all feel like weary and exhausted one scene in particular and this is something that i'm very keenly aware of in movies because of my own personal history was with the scene and this was a very uh, provocative scene for me was when there she gets he's like at first, he says, I'll oh, sleep over at your house. And they're like, no, 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 absolutely not. We'd rather die than have you sleep next to me, than be near me. And then he's on the couch and she comes out and she just very gently, she just nudges his leg with his with his foot. And I could read everything that was going on in his mind. And he's looking at her and he doesn't know what she wants. And she knows what she wants, but he doesn't know how to ask for it or how to, what to do. And so there's this very gentle and sincere moment that's conveyed through body language, because nothing has been said.
0: One of the things I think we all kind of touched on that's interesting, and it, I think all of our views sort of explain this, is the fact that once you've seen the monster, you can't unsee it.
3: The re, One of the questions I have written down here is, if we can see it, what does that mean? Because I means you're going to die, buddy. That's what it means. Yeah, exactly, exactly. It's like there's one thing in a movie where they hint at it, like Blair Witch, where you never see it. But seeing this... The, the ghost means you're gonna die. So the fact that we can see it means it's 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 kind of. Uh, wouldn't
0: it be great? Wouldn't Wouldn't it be great if there was like one person who like that dawned on them, like what you just said—the fact that you're in the audience and you can see it—and that's their first time that they realize their own mortality, like as they're watching the film. Like they have like an existential breakdown from watching it. Follows that would be amazing. I
1: actually know someone who. Well, I'll just put it this way: my daughter, when she was watching it with her friends, some of her friends hadn't watched movies like that before we've watched horror but nothing that was good Uh, a lot of the campy shit you know so one of her friends was watching this and she was like oh my gosh you know no matter what if you end up having that happen you're gonna die like if someone else dies, you're gonna die. Like you're, dead. you're inevitably gonna die. It's gonna happen. You're gonna die. We're all gonna die. And Kylie's <laughs> like, "Yeah, we're all gonna die." And she just, and then Kylie started to sound like a nihilist beam. <laughs> like I was cracking up. She's like, "We're all gonna die. Just get over it. Watch the movie. Enjoy it. This is the last time you're gonna be able to enjoy it because you're gonna die soon." And <laughs> it was it was dark and funny. Um, seeing these teenagers really. Think about their own mortality, that it's going to happen. And that's an age where you're not really thinking about death, you're thinking you're gonna live forever. But hearing teens at that age really contemplate their mortality because of the film, I, I thought that was fantastic. I-, I know it's scary, but it's also important. It's she she really,
0: she really saw the monster like she literally saw the monster at, in the yes. monster movie. Wow, that's amazing. Yeah, that's, that's...
1: what the, that's what the film does, though. I mean, it, even though we already know it, because we, we sit around and talk about these dark things all the time. But seeing someone really reflect on it for the first time, and just be like, Oh, my God, and she was screaming, she was hiding under the blankets. She's like, I'm gonna die. I'm gonna die wrong. I'm gonna die. Kylie's like, that. you're like, well, you
3: don't shut the fuck up. I'm gonna kill you.
1: So. <laughs> and that had, is how you're gonna die.
0: <laughs> she had that. She had that. Uh, that Dostoevsky moment at the end, right? Where it's like, it's like within an hour, and then within thirty minutes, and then within a minute, right? That kind of countdown. That anxiety. That, that. That's what a lot of this movie brought out for me when I first watched it. I I really like movies that are slow burns and they're very atmospheric and they. Produce a sense of anxiety and dread, whatever that means for you. I think what we established kind of in our first episode altogether is that we all all get very different things from horror movies. And the sorts of films that pull out that dread, pull out that anxiety, are radically different depending on your own personal psychology. And for a film like this, with It Follows, it really just reminded me of a time when mortality became something incredibly close to me and it was like i wasn't even a kid when this happened to me i mean i remember i think being a kid and kind of thinking about death but i always thought about it within the context like of a religious interpretation where you don't really die it's like a fake death it's like a transition right if you're a religious believer if you're a christian for example you like graduating school yeah it's like it's like graduating that's exactly right you're you're just transitioning to the next grade right and when you lose that, a couple things happen. One is an unbelievable sense of dread and anxiety and fear. Um, I've told my friends this, but when, uh, when I, yeah, I, when I, well, okay. So that for me came later, right? So I, I think for a lot of people, it's, it's um, it, it's, you know, it's a transition, right? So the first stage for me um, in, in realizing my own mortality. And I mean, when I say realizing my own mortality, I mean really contemplating that I'm a being unto death right to pull some heideggerian shit out i i i'm like i'm made to die for all intents and purposes and when i really thought about that when it dawned on me i was like in my mid to late 20s i had just lost my faith and death became not a transition but something final something that could happen at any moment like when i went to sleep i could just sleep forever i i remember not sleeping for days i there was a period where i didn't sleep for like 3 or 4 days because i was scared that if i closed my eyes I just wouldn't exist anymore, right? And this happened to me kind of late in life. And this film pulls out that same dread. When I was watching it, I, I just felt kind of the same way. I felt like, you know, I'm, I'm sensed, you know, say I'm over it as though you're really ever over it, but you move on. Um, like Jonas said, it can become an exciting thing. And that's that's the next thing is you learn things from it. So to me, it follows, it's kind of a challenge. It, it's a challenge to look at death and transition and pull things from it in your own life that you can learn, that give you kind of a four score and ten on your gravestone before you die. It makes you look at the world in a much more raw way, right? Um, where this truth is hanging over your head and you have to live in light of it. Um, and I think that's a, you know, that's what I got from the film. It, it spoke to me and made me feel kind of like I did all those years ago when I was freaking out about what I was going to do because I was going to die. But one, one of the things that's, that kind of uh,
2: tracked the theme of mortality for me was also the theme of – it's kind of like there's sort of a Catholic element of original sin to this. Like in, in Catholicism, um, traditionally, uh, sin is transmitted sexually from, from mother to child and, and so on and so forth, and, and, uh, and, and that carries with it you know the curse of mortality and, and all this other baggage. Um, and one of the things that I that I thought the film sort of metaphorically represented, in in addition to mortality, was kind of a perpetuation of cycles of abuse, like the notion that the notion that um, especially the way the the ghost or it is transmitted to Jay at the very beginning, where you know, everything seems fine. Everything's been cool. And then all of a sudden there's this violence, you know, it's not, he doesn't try to persuade her. He doesn't say, sit down and wait with me here. You know, maybe you'll see what's going on or, or, you know, you know what I mean? It's violent. She wakes up naked and bound to a chair. You know what I mean? And, and there's an, there's an abusive element to it. And, um, there's, there's, it's implicit that, that this transmission, um, when it's not done in with complete like informed consent as it's done with paul um in every other case this this uh the the transmission of the ghost is in some form uh sort of implicitly kind of awful or abusive in some way like it's rapey it's yeah when, when she when she's looking at the at the folks out um in the ocean or on the lake or whatever um and uh and it's kind of implied that she might be wanting to have sex with them to carry on the ghost. Um, it, that's, that would obviously be dark. It would obviously be super dark. It would be kind of like a murderous thing to do to transmit it to somebody and then not say anything about
0: it, right? Yeah. yeah. Um, yeah that, Antonio, you're right because there's so many like – I'm thinking about other things in the movie in light of that. So, Like, for example, when they see – when Jay sees the um, – the girl, all tattered and beaten up, and she's urinating herself. There's a, like there's like sexual assault elements in that. Do you know what I mean? You get that vibe of kind of an abuse or yes. a, a, a a rape. That from-
1: was something I noticed throughout the entire film. Um, As a rape victim, I could tell that they were trying to they were trying to give elements of that. And I, you know, there were triggering moments. I'm sure for certain people who've gone through certain kinds of abuses. Um I can watch those things and actually feel some form of vindication from it. So I'm sure some people might be harmed by some of these this imagery and some of the things that we're seeing. Whereas someone like me can feel like, okay, I'm not alone and other people have experienced these things and artists are trying to portray these these situations. Sure. Um, specifically from the, the woman who's obviously heavily abused and urinating on herself. That was very strong imagery for me. But it felt vindicating for me. And was a way of like dealing with my issues right um of course when we see her laying in the car and she's like flickering in the flower um i feel like that's her just still trying to be happy about her sexuality everything's great she she went that extra step and is still just happy with her flipping around her sexuality and then he just comes over and destroys what is there um and you see her hand like kind of flop onto the flower and you're just like oh my gosh that it was very very powerful imagery for me very very powerful and you know the fact that the rape that i had experienced was my first experience and it was a friend of mine that was very close to me that i trusted um it was one of those things where i was like oh my gosh this is a very powerful moment for me and i'm going to try to take this in and try to still understand the film but it was hard it was a hard moment and i i know that whoever was making this film has either known somebody or has experienced it themselves because the imagery was way too strong.
2: Yeah, that's a great point. And, and I think that it manifests even in subtler ways too. Um, like for example, with uh, with Greg, when she transmits it to Greg, um, there's, there's kind of a, a dual aspect of that that's sort of abusive there's there's the first aspect of that is there's kind of a lack of informed consent because greg doesn't actually accept that this thing's going to come for him that this is an inevitability that he needs to prepare for and at the same time um jay is operating kind of under the mentality she's trying to relieve herself of this burden right and so she's operating under the mentality of well this is horrible but he can take it right and so I'm going to do this thing that's awful to him, but you know he can take it, and it doesn't matter if he doesn't fully accept and he doesn't have fully informed consent. He can take it. At least now it's not going to be my problem anymore. Now the now the burden is shifted onto somebody else. Now now I've imposed my problems on another uh, on somebody else, even if they didn't necessarily completely consent to it. And which and is what
1: their... some people do when they get raped. Um, exactly. They will then rape as well I'm, and I'm, I'm not saying all people who rape rape because I've been raped and I don't rape but I'm just saying that there is that idea that when you've been abused or when you've been attacked that you will sometimes do it to others and actually feel like they can handle it um and actually feel like it's normalized so that could be a really dark message that is sent through the film honestly
2: yes and and the difference between greg and paul is that greg is is approached with the attitude of i'll pass my problems on to him right and paul is approached with the mentality of i'm going to take your burden on and we're going to carry it together which is a very very important thematic difference one of the really interesting things about this movie that is unusual in modern cinema um, as far as the cinematography goes, which I thought was really interesting and, and also contributes to the sort of anachronistic sense that they develop in the movie. and and this ties in with the Detroit scene is that um establishing and transitional shots are much more heavily emphasized in this movie than in almost any other modern picture. and and this is this is a modern innovation, okay? if you actually go back and watch movies from like the seventies, the seventies is really a period. um, And you can see this even in TV shows as well, watch movies from the seventies and watch when people get in their cars and drive places. Okay. Because you will notice that the camera lingers on them driving places to a much greater extent than you will see in modern cinema. You will see that, that going places is an important, watching the car go, go places is a really important element in uh, older school movies that you see almost completely bleed out by the time you get to the 2000s. And it follows definitely harkens back to these older movies as far as really emphasizing travel times and travel experiences. In, and and it also does this in the establishing shots. For the most part in modern movies, you'll see establishing shots are like five seconds long. You know, You'll have a wide shot of some kind of you know building where the people are supposed to be and then it'll smash cut to inside the building where now they're having an interaction or whatever and there's much more slow panning around to establish the whole scene in it follows and there's a whole lot of um, um, elements of, of you know lingering the camera on particular elements taking a long time without any dialogue, not smash cutting inside watching people just go inside and then cutting inside after they've already gone, etc. Um, And and the other other thing that I wanted to to sort of bring up is um, the soundtrack. We've mentioned the soundtrack only in merest passing. And honestly, as I I think Noah said earlier, it's one of the best elements of the movie, and it's one of the most powerful elements of the movie, and the movie wouldn't succeed without it. Um, The soundtrack for me was really interesting because it's it's, uh, one of these, again, sort of consciously timeless elements. It's, It's retro. Um, in, in, a, in a way that honestly really reminded me of the Stranger Things soundtrack. Um, very, very similar. It also reminded me of Jack Wall's work. He's a composer who's done a, a bunch of stuff. He's composed for a few video games. I think the one you guys might be most familiar with is a Mass Effect. Um, he's, done, he's His music is done similarly. And so there's an interesting juxtaposition in the musical style because on the one hand, it's retro. It's clearly designed to sound like it comes from like an 80s movie or, or what have you. But on the other hand, it also sounds like some much 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 more modern works that are very synthesizer heavy as well um and so i I would class the the soundtrack as kind of retro ambient and I think it's really important in in a couple respects both in in establishing the referential but also timeless quality of the movie and then at the same time the soundtrack is very subtle there's no uh, there's no vocals in any of the elements of the soundtrack. You don't actually even hear any songs playing on the radio at any point, I don't think, um, which is an important element to note. Um, and uh, and there are huge periods of silence in the movie. You know, the actual soundtrack probably doesn't play for more than 50% of the movie's running time. And so the, the it's clearly very um tone painting in its intention it's it's just designed as a brush stroke across particular scenes to add the necessary uh audio color so to speak to a scene
3: i just want to add to your comment about the the long establishing shots uh one scene in particular that comes to mind that i thought was really well done was the 360 degree shot in the school i mean 300 slow 360 degree shots are always effective. I, I've never, especially when there's nothing at the end of the circle, because it just builds tension. Whether there's something there or not, you expect something to be there, and that expectation builds and builds and builds, and it crescendos once it comes to the end of the loop, whether something is there or not. So, um,
0: yeah, the, uh, the just to add to that, uh, or to add to the music component, it was very. Uh, I enjoyed the fact it was very synth-heavy. It was almost like an early John Carpenter. Um, it was. It was. Uh you're, that's a really good way to put it, Antonio. It was like retro but not retro. I, that's a perfect way to put that for me. I felt like it was almost it was uh it was from a, a long time ago, but like just from now. I that's and that sounds incredibly weird. And, I, but, don't I basically took yeah. obviously
2: is is much more uh, heavily highlighted in the in the identity of it because it, it behaves almost exactly like the thing, right? Mm-hmm. It can take the form of anything that, that it's come in contact with, basically. And it prefers to take a form that is that is emotionally damaging to its target um, in the same way as the thing Um, Now, of course, it doesn't have the same and and it's also sort of an alien being that is implacable and extremely hard to get rid of and um, is also uh, uh, You know violent and uh, Kind of feeds off of paranoia and suspicion and the notion that other people don't believe that it is where it really is very similar uh, thematically to to the thing in a lot of different ways honestly i i thought that that it was um kind of an a throwback to lovecraft as well in in the way that it approached that
0: so we've been jumping around kind of our in uh, our enjoyment aspects of the film and then our appreciative aspects kind of the things that we can objectively pull from the from the film and then the things that we liked and we enjoyed about it if you could give this movie a score one to ten right Just keep it simple one to ten what would you give this film in terms of enjoyment i'd probably give it um a nine out of ten i thought it was really really
2: well executed it's a very well artistically done film um i don't think it's perfect i think there's some elements that you could quibble with it um and i think that it may be it may have been too ambitious of a film in some ways. I think that with a slightly more intense focus on the main themes, you might have been able to have to have an even more powerful experience. But it's a very powerful film. There isn't anything else like it in horror today, and um, and it definitely is. It definitely really walks the tightrope well of being both a nostalgia trip and innovating on the genre, which is, I think, a brilliant accomplishment. I don't give a whole lot of movies higher than eight. This one would get a nine.
1: So, um, I've been going through the 1001 movies you're supposed to see before you die, and you watch a lot of the innovative movies, the movies that kind of break a mold and start something new that's going to happen in film. And they're not necessarily the greatest movies you've ever seen, but you're like, oh shoot, this is gonna, everyone's gonna start doing this. Or you look back on movies and you're like, this started all of these other movies. This is definitely one of those movies. It, it's going to definitely influence horror film for just years and years and years to come. It has to be up there as a nine because of that. It, it has to be because it's going to change how horror films are, are going to be made. And, and it's gonna make legitimate a genre that I've loved for so long. So, I I'm very much enjoyed it. I watched it over and over again, enjoyed every single time I watched it, which is very rare for me with movies. Usually I watch a movie and I'm like, "Okay, I'm good." There's only a few movies that I can rewatch, like Clerks. I for some reason can watch that a million times. <laughs> but most movies I can't. This was a watch rewatchable over and over again, by the way. Like I it was like back to back to back and still got something new out of it every time I watched it, too, by the way. So um, it has to be really high up there. And I don't normally give high ratings to very many films, but this is a very important film, I think, and I think will stand out decades to come. Yeah.
3: There's, there are certain movies that you watch it the first time, and remember, I've only seen this once, and at first you walk out and you're like, eh, okay, it was good, it wasn't bad, but it was, it was, just, it was just a movie. And then the more you think about it, the longer you think about it, you can't stop thinking about it. it. It starts to set in and you remember things that somehow you remember things that you were, were less important to you when you were initially watching the film. And so it builds and it, it kind of it has to like like slow cook in your head for and it's still slow cooking. So my initial reaction was probably five, a perfect 5.0 after this discussion probably in the high nines this discussion like this discussion helped me appreciate the movie more because i was able to actually converse and either elaborate or complain or praise we're all having a discussion about it helped me think about the movie better rather than if i had seen it by myself middle of the afternoon you know, it's just—it was just—it was fine, but I—I I knew what affected me, but I needed other opinions to sort of ground and expand on my own thinking. I needed—I needed competing thoughts for me to 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 be, to honestly examine it.
2: It's definitely a movie that that benefits from analysis, that ripens with analysis,
0: if you will. Talking about horror movies, who would have thought? It's, it'd be great if someone made a podcast about that. I don't know. Uh, yeah, for me, uh, I would say you know nine nine five for me. I think the only one I would give that's a little higher than this, and this may be controversial, is Evil Dead Two. Evil Dead Two, I think, is the greatest horror movie of all time. But damn, this is close to me. So yeah, I mean, I nine point five ish for me. Um, I the the ambience of this film, the 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 slow cook, the uh the 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 lack of shit that makes me jump out of my skin there's a couple of things like that in the film i think that the, the this one thing we didn't talk about is the the jump sequences were actually they they were you know there weren't you... many but they were great they were really good yeah well, that's guy... that's the thing
1: a lot of horror of mo- oh, the tall guy was a huge okay
3: yeah i the I, tall I guy that. was a
1: huge deal in my house everyone freaked out i don't i don't know what it is but he was the scariest element to everybody
0: but also, but also, if you're if you're taking from this film, if what you're if you're watching this and you're starting to interpret things in lieu of, I should say, in light of um, uh, uh, sexual assault, if that's part of the narrative for you, then seeing a very like a seven foot seven guy with black eyes walk behind a young female like that out of nowhere, sort of just aggressively, that's that's going to be fucking horrifying. I mean it's horrifying even if you're not pulling that shit from the film. But if that's how you're interpreting these other aspects of the film, that only adds to that, that fear, I think. I felt connected to this horror film in a way I haven't felt to many other horror films um, because of its ambience, because of its, it's um, because of its idea of death, that it's something that stalks you. And that's something that I had to reflect on constantly. And so without it just coming out and telling me that that's what it's about, I mean, it's pretty clear. I think we're all agreeing that death is the, one of the pinnacle elements of this film. It's one of the main things that you're supposed to take away from it. The work that you do in how you approach death and how this film presents it, uh, it, it, it brought me back to that time when I had to think about these things. But it did it in a way that was like, shit, it wasn't, I mean, it was scary, but it was almost familiar. It was almost okay. It was, uh, it felt warm. I, it sounds so weird to say that. I, I, it's hard for me to describe it. It, it was scary, but it. F- I don't know. Maybe it just felt good to know that this is such a deeply common thing that people struggle with. That um, this film can present it the way it did. I it just felt really I felt very connected to the themes that the film was trying to throw at me in a way I really don't for other films that I even really like so like the next film we're going to talk about after it follows is let me in. Um, We'll probably watch let the right one in but I I specifically want to watch the English version I I know that's blasphemy to some people and there's a reason for why I'm I'm advocating that and we'll talk about that in the next uh, in the next podcast. But like even in that film and in other films that I really, really like, and I think they're some of my favorite horror films, I don't think I've ever felt so connected to a central issue in a film um, than I did in It Follows. Um, and so, yeah, I'd give it, I'd give it a 9.5 uh, with the only, the only other movie topping it being Evil Dead. And I got to tell you, the, the reasons that I like Evil Dead are unbelievably different than the reasons that I like It Follows. Yeah, so like there's certain films where I can enjoy just the shit out of them, like Evil Dead. But I can't, like, we can't have, I don't, could we have a conversation about Evil Dead 2 like we're having about It Follows? Like, I I, want to say no. Like, I want to, I really do want to say no. I feel like Antonio's going to, like, give me this amazing interpretation of Evil Dead 2 right now that's going to blow my socks off, so I'm kind of baiting him. Um, But I I just, like, I don't think that's possible. And I think that's why I really, I really uh, liked It Follows, is it allowed me to enjoy the film but it also allowed me to appreciate it in a way that was familiar to me.
2: Yeah, it's and like, I, like I kind of started out saying, it, it to me was a very essentialist experience, and that's yeah. what makes it successful is, is that – and it's kind of an irony, right? That, that in order to convey something that is so basic and so primal and so common to human experience, you have to put in so much fucking work it takes so much careful framing and cutting things out and shaping things just the right way to evoke the right shade of thing right here, you know? And and it takes all that work and the reason, but at the at base, the irony is the reason it's successful is all that complexity goes into transmitting something that's so basic that we all feel it on a gut level all the time.
0: So one of the things I liked from the first podcast is that we all, just, I noticed we all interpret shit fairly differently. Um, And and I like being able to come to a movie and having us all sort of give our own perspective. The cool thing about this one, it was almost, it was a little bit of the opposite because it's so essentialist, like Antonio was saying. I think we all kind of got the death stuff from it. We got the mortality stuff from it. We got the adolescence, the sexual anxieties, the sexual fears. It's an incredibly complicated, complex film that talks about a very basic and simple um, component of human existence. That may be the most important thing that we can talk about. I mean, I to me, talking about death and understanding death appropriately as as the finality of your existence and not a transitory, as not a not a transition into another life, but in understanding the finality of your own existence, you know, there that is unbelievably important in, in the sort of thing that it produces in you. It allows you to create yourself in a whole new way. It allows you to understand why you value things so heavily. You value things precisely because there's, in, there's this intuitive sense that you're going to lose them one day. And that does work in you. That changes you. It be, you. You sort of become your own work of art when you take those very fundamental and very basic things that life shows you seriously. And I think that was the, the beauty of It Follows. All right, so I apologize about the abrupt ending there. Um, we just went on and rambled and rambled and talked about horror movies after that. Um, so uh, follow us on Instagram and Twitter at, at Deadly analysis. You can find us on Facebook at the Deadly Analysis Podcast. I hope you liked what you listened to. If you did, uh, subscribe on our YouTube channel. Uh, send us a message. I hope you enjoyed the show. Thank you for taking the time to listen.